All right, guys, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. We have a, a little different episode for you today. This episode was our interview recorded with Tom Doak and Eric Iverson. You, uh, we've recorded this live at the summit. This was the first ever event we've hosted. It was held at Common Ground Golf Course uh, last week in Denver. Tom and Eric were nice enough to come join us for the peak party on Thursday night and come talk about a golf course they designed, Common Ground. And uh, we, we're going to talk about it a lot. I think, you know, even if you haven't been to a Common Ground before, I think hopefully you can resonate with some of the things that made that resonated with us, I think, for a public area, a public golf course in a, in a major city. Every, every major city should have one of these, is what I'm trying to say. It was really cool to see the impact it's had on the junior programs there, the, the caddy program there, the, the Solish Caddy and Leadership Program. And it's just cool to hear them talk about a, a golf course that means a lot to them and uh, means a lot to the city of Denver. So thanks to both of them. We, I never did get around to introducing Eric Iverson's background. He's worked with Tom with the Renaissance Design Company for almost 20 years. He's been with Tom on some of Tom's biggest projects, Terry Eady, Cape Kidnappers, all over the globe in Korea. And uh, just you can pull up his list of golf courses. It's re remarkable, his experience. And uh, of course, it all. Tom is, Tom's resume is well known, but Eric's might not be as well known, but he has done so much in the game of golf and uh, is a great resource of knowledge. So uh, before we do get started, a quick word from our friends at Callaway, the number one irons in golf for four straight years and counting. This incredible feat is driven by Apex Irons, the ultimate in forged performance featuring industry-leading 360 face cup technology for explosive distance and urethane microspheres with a forged body for incredible sound and feel. The Apex Irons are the whole package. Don't take our word for it. They were the only iron in the entire market awarded 20 of 20 stars in the 2019 Golf Digest hot list and 100% of, of reviewers on CallawayGolf.com recommend Apex. They're available in Apex, Apex and Pro combo set, as well as the Stealthy Smoke PVD finish. Visit CallawayGolf.com today and find out why golfers everywhere are raving about the Apex from Callaway, the number one irons in golf. And without further delay, let's get to our podcast interview with Tom Doak and Eric Iverson. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, yeah. that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first ever live podcast here at Common Ground. We are here with Eric Iverson and Tom Doak and a studio audience here today for the first time. There we go. Full disclosure, I asked them to cheer that loud before we started recording. But thank you, Tom and Eric, for being here. Uh, this is one of your the golf courses you guys designed. I'm curious, first, this, this course opened, I believe, about 10 years ago. What's it like coming back to a golf course that you built? What do you typically see has changed since the moment you left when you built it? Oh, a lot of things change over time. I mean, it's really nice to come back at this point. Like the first two or three years I come back to a course I've done, it's like there are a hundred questions for me. The superintendent wants to know, what about this? What about that? The client wants to know, well, people aren't liking the fourth hole so much. What can we do about that? And you can't just go out and enjoy the golf course for yourself and watch other people play it. And that's what we really want. We want feedback and we want, we want to see it for ourselves that it works the way we thought it worked, but it's hard to get over that the first couple of years. So 
So now, Eric lives in Denver, so he gets to play out here quite a bit. I've only played it three or four times, so I'm still kind of finding out for myself. Eric, do you ever like hit it in bunkers that you help shape or things you put in, in your own way? Like, damn it, why did I put that there? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you can't unsee something that is meant to kind of be in your head in the first place. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, uh, you know, mowing lines in the beginning tend to kind of morph around and find their way, you know, find their balance to where, you know, they really ought to be for day-to-day play. And I think after you've played a golf course about a hundred times, that's about the equivalent of how well we know a golf course. So there's plenty of people here now that have played the golf course way more than a hundred times and know the golf course better than we do. So you, you kind of transition into or out of having it kind of be your baby and then all of a sudden a lot of people know more about it than you do, which is kind of yeah. interesting. And it's cool. Usually we only get that feedback from like the private member courses where people have paid to be there over and over and over again. You know, the resort courses, like not many people have played Pacific Dunes a hundred times. Even, even if they've got the money, they just they go out there for three or four days a year. They play the other courses too. So you never get feedback on those that you didn't expect. What is it like to play your own golf courses? No, I don't think anybody in this room is ever going to have that experience. Is it any, do you enjoy it more or less? Like, do you start critiquing yourself when you're playing it? What's it like? Well, I mean, hopefully if you've done a good job, you just enjoy it. I mean, you've been visualizing how it's going to be for so long that it's really, I mean, the first couple times I play, generally I play really well because it's easier. I have no bad history of this. I've just been visualizing what are the right shots to play in it for two or three years, and I'll do okay. And then, you know, years ago I walked, I walked a golf course with Peter Jacobson when he was doing a practice round before a tournament, and he just walked it. He had never, he had never played there before. It was for the U.S. Open. And he, he said, I don't want any bad shots in my head. If I go play a practice round right now and I hit a bad shot, I'm going to have trouble with that hole all week. So I don't want to put that in my head yet. I want to get a positive view of it first. What, what is the story, I guess, where does it start for you guys for Common Ground? I mean, I think I find I almost always enjoy golf courses more the more I know about them, the more I know the story. And just hearing about what was here, what you guys did it, how, the budget you guys did it on, how you received your fee for doing it and all that made me appreciate this place even more. So I don't know where the story starts for you, but what is the story on Common Ground for you? Well, I'm going to turn this over to Eric because his history goes back way farther than mine. Uh, But both Eric and Don Plasek, who runs my office, looked at this project many years ago when it first got handed over to the CGA from Lowry Air Force Base when they closed the Air Force Base golf course. And, you know, they they were trying to figure out what they could do with it back then, which was... 10 years before we built it or something like that. Maybe Early 90s. That. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they had spent time trying to think through it a bit way back. And one of the main reasons I was interested in being involved with it was because they had so much history there. I knew it would mean a lot to Eric living here to work on something in his own backyard, not just because he can come play it, but also because... It's a home game and you don't have to fly halfway around the world a bit to work. Is you know, I just got that at the loop. It was only an hour from my house, which was tremendously more fun. And you just go over for a day instead of having to plan a trip a month in advance. And Don grew up out here, so you know, he 
and still had family connections out here, so he really wanted to be involved too. And I was like, sure, go ahead. In the beginning, I thought, well, I'm just gonna let them bid on it. I'm not even gonna be involved. They'll do great. And uh, that's not how it worked out, but I'll let Eric talk about that. It is true that we had a look at it uh, many years prior, but things, things do tend to work out for a reason. And you know, Don and I, as enthusiastic as we were, we were probably not fully prepared to do something on a par with how this turned out. So we, we had discussed just between us how, how grateful we were that things kind of worked out the way that they did. Um, yeah, being local was a huge, a huge component of it, but also, you know, the ethos of the place was also huge. Both, actually everybody that works for our company, not just Don and I, but everybody grew up playing public golf. And, you know, having been in the business a little while, we really came to appreciate how easy it should be to provide really high quality golf for not any more than, sometimes less, than what, than what people pay for inferior, you know, not as good, certainly not as good value for money. So from that standpoint, it was, it was just a home run. It was dear to our hearts, it's our hometown, and it just fit in the whole, you know, narrative of what we were all about. The whole time we were playing today, I was looking around trying to find the reasoning why it was $48 for locals to play. I kept being like, oh, we'll, we'll see eventually. There's got to be something wrong with it. It doesn't, it doesn't really add up. I'm curious, I mean, you guys, you may have more to add on what the process is for how you end up choosing jobs, but being premier architects, I would imagine you pretty much have the pick of the litter. What, and I don't know if responsibility is the right word, but what, I'll, I'll try that one. What responsibility do you guys have to kind of be involved in the public golf scene? What, what, how do you guys view your role in that regard? Well... It's weird because, you know, like Eric, I grew up playing a public course in Stamford, Connecticut called Sterling Farms. They had a great junior program. When I, was in, when I was a kid, you could play in the afternoon for a dollar a round. In Stamford, Connecticut, which is a pretty rich suburb of New York City, they just believed in doing that. And when the CGA came to us, I said, well, what do you, what do you want to do? And they said their mission was they'd saved $4 million. They'd been saving money off handicap fees, tournament entry fees, all that for years. We've saved up $4 million. We want to spend this money and make this a much better golf course for $4 million, but we still want it to be a $40 golf course. We don't want to, you know, we're not doing this to raise the price. We're just spending this money to make it better. And I was like, that's cool. You do not hear that from very many people. Uh, we both worked for Pete Dye for a while, and I, I know Pete got into a couple of deals that he was trying to give back to golf, and he's, he told a guy, I'll design the golf course for a dollar just to give back to golf. And the guy, one of the guys turned around and sold the golf course for a profit as soon as he was done. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a very competitive world. And some of my clients that pay me top dollar to design a golf course don't really want to hear that I'm going to do another project for a fraction of the cost or defer my fee over the long term like I did here. So it's a balancing act. But, you know, we, we kind of tell the clients, we're like a law firm. We're going to do some work because we feel like it's a good thing to do. How often do you refer your fee like you did for here? Not very often. <laughs> I don't think very many people in the golf business know what that deal was. Yeah. 
So I imagine, you know, with each course you design and build, there's varying circumstances and goals. If somebody comes to you and says, I want a championship golf course, you kind of have something in mind of what you want to build. Uh, you're going to build longer golf holes potentially, but for like a public place like Common Ground, what are the first principles that come to mind? Is it walkability? Is it width? Is it being able to find your golf ball? What are the goals in building a course that everyone can play compared to maybe a private golf course? Well, I think they're pretty much the same for all of the projects we do. Walkability is really big to me, uh, you know. I mean, yeah, I've worked on a couple pieces of terrain that were way more hilly and severe and stretched out, but if I didn't think I could walk it when we finished, I probably would just decline the job. I where does really that come from? I mean, where does the walkability, why does that rank so highly oh, for you? Um, well, that year I spent in the UK after I got out of college uh, on a scholarship from Cornell to spend a year traveling around the UK and Ireland and seeing all the best golf courses. And, you know, the ethos of that I thought that was about going to see all the best golf holes and see, get these cool ideas that I could build somewhere. But in the end, it was all about the ethos of this is why golf exists and this is how they do it over here. And to them, it's, golf is outdoor recreation and it is exercise. They walk their dog with them while they play golf sometimes. And it's such a different attitude than here. And, you know, it really impressed me and I just thought, why can't it be more like that in the States? And, and there's certainly a lot of places that it is like that. But, you know, again, the pressures of the golf business are, oh, we can make a lot of money off golf carts. So we should do that because we want to make as much money as we can. You know, it takes a client like the CGA to say, we're not trying to make as much money as we can here. We're trying to do the right thing. So with Common Ground specifically, I'm always, I'm always really curious and it drives me crazy just like thinking about how you would go about beginning routing a golf course. It's just like a puzzle. I, I don't know where you put the first pieces. So right. for, for, for a lot of people here are, have either played this golf course or we're good to play it tomorrow. And I want to know specifically for this place, when you go look at this site, what's the first thing you try to do? Do you find, try to find like the best spot and the best thing that you're going to work off of? I, is it different for every site? How does it, it's, how does, I would it's imagine. different for different sites. I mean, obviously, if you're on hilly ground, you need to find the flatter places that you can build a golf hole and the ball just won't roll right out of the fairway because it's too steep. If you're on a really flat piece of ground, you're looking for any little feature that you can go, yeah, that I could build a cool green just with that little bump right there. There was a golf course here already. Is that easier or harder? It's harder because... You sort of, if nothing else, you know, this was, this was where the clubhouse was. Almost on the spot, actually, where this tent is now. And, you know, it's got a parking lot there, and it's, you know, it's easy access off the main road, so that's where it's going to be. And that really, I mean, that's 80% of the options for how you route the golf course off the table. You know, because that means you're going to have to have four holes coming back to the spot and a safe room for a practice range, too. Um, and I would rather not have that at the beginning. Obviously, there's a lot of sites that you're going to, you know, even if there's not a golf course there, you're close to the main road. You don't want to build a driveway two miles to get into the thing if you could just park right here. So when cost is a factor, yeah. I mean, sometimes the clubhouse is kind of like one of the first things you figure out. But I would rather go try to find golf holes first. And, you know, some of those things that attract us, and I just think, well, that would be a cool hole. Um, or, you know, just little things on the ground. I'm trying to think of a couple here. Actually, the one here, as much as anything, were, were the trees that were here. 
because it was, you know, they'd planted around some of the golf holes, but way too tight, way too tight. And there's a place out there by number four. It's in between, it's, it's by three and four, and which hole is it 15. that comes back there? 15. If, you, if, you, if I took you out there and put you in the right spot, it's like the trees to the right of four and the trees to the right of the hole on the other side, and then there's just this little space in between. That was one of the golf holes here originally. <laughs> They'd routed the golf course kind of randomly across a big, air, big open space, and then they planted trees really close to the cart paths or the fairways, and they wound up with narrow spaces for golf holes and wide spaces in between. And we were like, well, that seems backwards. So a couple of the golf holes here are just in between where the other holes used to be. But I don't, we, we moved a few trees. Picked them up and moved we, them? Yeah. yeah. How often we, do you do something like that? Is that a normal thing? Uh, pretty rare. Yeah. You know, we actually got a great deal. There were some we didn't want, and I think it was Eric or, or the superintendent, I don't know which, worked out a deal with a landscape guy. Like, for every tree you move for us, you can take one or two and use them on a landscape project somewhere for free. So it didn't cost anything to do that to the CGA. We had to come up with a lot of deals like that in order to do as much as we could for $4 million. This might be a, a really broad question, but I'm just curious in how both of you would phrase this. But you just mentioned there, like when you go out looking for routing, you're looking for cool golf holes. What's a cool golf hole? You've built go so many golf holes. What do you, are you always looking to do something different or just something that you find unique? Or what, what is a cool golf hole to you? Start with Eric. I know she kicked that one to me. <laughs> Jeez. I got to think, think about it. <laughs> I think it goes back to the routing process and the choices that you make early on. You know, you're not only looking for, for good holes and places that kind of serve a purpose, but you're also just looking for cool parts of the property where you just naturally kind of want to be and are drawn to. When you identify one, two, three of those, a lot of times you start to think about, you know, how many times can I kind of approach this same area from a different angle? Um, what are some of those spots out here, if you don't mind? Well, the, the spot right around the carry from 18T to the fairway as it works across 17, and then, you know, it kind of becomes the, the corner of the dog leg for 16. I guess to put it in a nutshell, that's really the convergence of a lot of really good topography in one spot. And it's just like, yeah, there's a lot of different directions you could go working out of this area. So let's make sure we make the most of this. And in terms of what makes a cool hole, I think one factor has to be that it has to make you think about where you want to be on each shot and kind of a sequential set of ramifications for either making poor choices or hitting poor shots. Some of it's less tangible than that, and it's more just kind of a sense of, yeah, this was a special spot, and they didn't screw it up by building a crummy hole. You know, yeah. a lot of times it's as simple as that. You're like, you know, yeah. you don't have to really understand architecture to kind of be someplace on a golf course. It's just like, wow, this is a really special part of the property, but this hole seems stupid. And, you know, that can happen. So I think that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. That can happen. Um, for me... Not to us. <laughs> hopefully not. <laughs> you know, what he was saying about, 
you know, there wasn't a lot of topography out here to work with. I mean, this, this clubhouse, this old clubhouse area sits up on a hill about 25 or 30 feet higher than the rest of the golf course. And after that, it's just gradually all down into the far corner. So there, you know, there is that big, like, uh, drainage control berm around two sides of the golf course, which did fill up a few years ago, not long after we built the golf course. I was like, when is there ever going to be that much water? And there was. Um, but um, so again, on something like this, you're looking for, okay, here's one cool corner. How many holes can I get in there? You know, he mentioned 16, 17, and 8, but also like number two green is backed up the other side of that, looking toward the mountains, tiny little hole, just kind of wedged in the middle in a place you probably wouldn't have thought to build a golf hole if you weren't trying to make more out of that space. For me, a cool golf hole is just, usually it's about, you stand on the tee and it excites you, and then whenever you stand on the tee on a golf hole, you are drawn toward the flag. And that's the fail point of a lot of golfers is, if you've got a dogleg hole, say a dogleg right, where you can see the flag from the tee, the last thing you do before you hit the ball is you look up and instead of looking at where you should be going, you look at the flag. And what are you gonna do? You're gonna hit it dead right on that hole. So to me, a cool golf hole is one that has that tension in it that, you know, boy, that looks cool, I wanna go there. And then that's really not the best way to go. And that could get you in trouble if you try to do that. It might work, but it might get you in a lot of trouble. I'm thinking of, I think it's 15 at Barnbuckle Dunes, the short par four. Is that, am I have that right? Yes. With a big yes. bunker right in the middle? The right I remember middle. standing on that tee, and there's tons of fairway to the left for people that can't picture this. Tons of fairway to the left with this bunker that's right in line with the green. And I remember thinking like, oh, let's just go left. This looks so easy. And I was like, wait a second, Doak is up to something here. There's, this is not that easy. So I put it in front of that bunker, and then you get a perfect look. And if you, if you do go left, you're completely blind. There's a dune that protects uh, and it. And I thought you were going to say, you know, there's, a, there's about 20 yards of fairway to the right of that bunker over it, and that that's like the sucker play. You do not go there. But, <laughs> but a lot of people go there. It's like, oh, there's fairway there. I could sneak that in there. And yeah. in the wind there, that is a bad idea. Yeah. So what are some of the coolest golf holes that you guys feel like you've built all around the world? What are the first holes you think of? You know, obviously the holes that sit right on the cliff of the ocean, both the 11th, the par 3 at Pacific Dunes, and the 13th hole after it, and the 4th hole that's in between them coming back the other way, it's just, you know, 450 yards of oceanfront real estate is a pretty good deal. And, you know, those are, you know, one of them has just a 50-foot sand dune blown out bunker on the, on the other side of it. It's spectacular. And the first time I saw that, I was like, well, there's a golf hole. Yeah. You know, I don't even really feel that proud of something like that because that was there. All we had to do is decide, okay, where does the grass stop here? And, and the topography pretty much had that set, too. Um, you know, Cape Kidnappers is one of the most spectacular places we've worked. It was, just, it was a fun place to get. You had to, like, go a good 30, 40 minutes up this twisty, windy road to get up there just to go to work every day. And then you're up there, you're like four or 500 feet above the ocean looking down at it. Um, you know, a couple places just kind of hanging, scary looking out over the edge of the cliff, but afraid to get too close to it. Um, 12 green. 12 green at Cape Kidnappers. Well, I was going to say... Never seen anything like it before or since. 
It just it's looks just like you're hidden into space. <laughs> well, tell. I want to hear, and I hope this is you're able to picture this. You're listening at home, but what you almost did with the 14, 13th green at Cape Kidnappers, the short par three. Who told you that story? You did. Okay. <laughs> inside you said baseball. it on our Instagram. I was saving <laughs> that for my book. <laughs> we have to wait for your book for that one. Yeah. Okay. Next year. What about I'll, you? I'll pick it up. Yeah. Uh, I, I consider it really a set of holes. I think, you know, when we're yeah. kind of uh, getting our head around what routing we're going with and Tom's kind of worked out, you know, this is what we're doing. We always kind of gravitate to the short par fours. I think, especially now when people, you know, people are hitting the ball so far, the short par, four, the long par four is kind of Kind of passe now. It doesn't exist. Really, it doesn't exist. Because yeah, the long par four is a 550-yard par five, and only it's a par four for the best players. But the short fours are where you can really still, you know, keep everybody on their toes. They're usually in great parts of the property, and the two that come to mind, you know, seven at Ballyneal is one of the most unique greens anybody's built in the last 20 years. I didn't have anything to do with it, but I absolutely love it. I think it's incredible. You had mentioned Barnboogle. The fourth at Barnboogle is kind of on an epic scale, so that kind of fits that sense of place bit. But a lot of people around here might be more familiar with this little eighth hole, a common ground, is a confounding little short four that he built with uh, Brian Schneider. It's a chance to make three, it's a chance to make five, and you know every day is a little bit different. There's it's amazing. No, you're, yeah, you're just never going to. You're just just based on where the holes cut. You're just where not going to hit it bunker, in the same place. What one little bunker can yeah. do, like that well, hole, just, yeah. and, and the contour in the front. Yeah, that, just that super abrupt front edge. Yeah, it's just it. It really just you know makes you figure out what you're going to do. That was the plainest part of this site. It was just dead flat. There was nothing going on. We had it drawn on the plan like it'd be a dog leg left, and then it's like, well, why would we do that? Because then we're going to have to walk way the hell back over here to get to the T for nine. So let's let's try to get the green in here. But uh, that's the one I spent by far the most time on. Mm -hmm. Most of the other holes, they're kind of sitting in a good place. These guys are building cool greens. It's like, okay, that's fine. And that one, really, nobody had any time idea what we were going to do. So we just stared at it and stared at it and stared at it until, and then thought about, okay, what have I seen on just dead flat ground that makes a green cool? And there's, there's a green at St. Andrews that's a little like that, that there's just this little shelf that's really hard to get on and stay on. And so, you know, and the pin's not always there. And, you know, when the, but you know, it's funny, like when the pin's on the shelf, it's really hard to get on and you, you, you go over into the little trough and back pretty easily. Next day, the pin's back there, and it's like, all you have to really do is just hit a shot into the middle of the green, and it'll wind up in that back trough. But when you're trying to get to the back trough, it's like, there's not much space there. How am I going to do that? <laughs> I'm curious. I mean, I'm sure all your experience in the UK uh, has helped shape your design philosophies, but I'm, I'm curious how that has progressed throughout your career. You've seen, I don't even want to know how many golf courses, do you still see new stuff that inspires you guys? Yes. Yes. Um, I've seen, I've walked 1,600 golf courses. 
and you know, because I'm working on the update to the confidential guide, I've seen like 30 or 40 new courses a year the last four or five years. I kind of, I have to admit, I one of the reasons I'm doing the book is I kind of stopped doing that so much. You know, we were busy and doing a bunch of cool stuff, and it's like, you know, I've, I've already seen all the famous courses and nearly all the top 100 courses, anything I wanted to go see. And, you know, so now I'm like going, I'm making golf trips to India and Sri Lanka and Nepal and places I honestly wasn't sure I would ever go. And it's been great. You know, the golf, the golf architecture and especially the maintenance of the golf courses is completely iffy. I mean, you never know what you're going to get. I, my favorite course in India was just, there was barely any grass out there at all. And there were kind of like, stones every once in a while mark the edge of the fairway and if if you if your ball stayed in the fairway you could kind of set it up on grass you could improve your lie and if it didn't you couldn't and you were basically hitting off dirt but there were some holes that were like there's so much slope in the fairway that trying to stay in the fairway with no grass to hold it was pretty hard but i get a kick out of seeing those places and seeing what other people can enjoy golf without we think you know in america it's like We've got to spend $8 million to build a golf course and we have to have all these fancy bunker liners and we have to do this and that. And the other thing is like, no. I mean, golf courses were never like that when I was a kid and it was fun. You don't need all that stuff to have a golf course that's interesting to play and that people want to go back and play again. And that's something that I, I wanted to ask you guys about and I feel like I've, I've kind of struggled with because the more and more I've learned about golf architecture, the more it unlocks the ways that I enjoy the game, the way I think about it. I used to think that golf courses just need to be there for me to be able to take advantage of and make birdies. And I found more joy in making really dumb double bogeys sometimes because now I understood what <laughs> traps I've fallen into. And I find, you know, we try to talk, you know, we, we get kind of some pushback from some listeners on not caring about architecture stuff, but I just try to keep pounding in because I think there's so much to unlock there. So I'm curious to ask you guys, for somebody that doesn't really know a ton about architecture, what would you say to them that you think would help them enjoy the game even more than maybe they already do? Well, you, you kind of just said it. You know, you, you have fun making double bogeys sometimes. You know, most people, their entire view of whether a golf course is any good or not is based on how they played. If I made birdie on that hole, I really like that hole. If I made double bogey on that hole, that's a crap hole. And, you know, that's natural. We do it too. But... If you can just delay that just a little bit, and when you mess up a hole, instead of just saying, that's a crap hole, ask yourself, why did you mess up that hole? What was out there that did that to you? you know, and not, you know, if you sliced it in the trees, that's just you. But if you didn't, then there's other things going on there. If you actually understood them a little, you would wind up playing a lot better. I, I caddied only briefly, but my only caddy experience really was when I went overseas, the first thing I was going to do, I lived in St. Andrews the first two months I was there. And I was going to work on the maintenance crew for the golf course, but they were in a terrible recession. It's a town golf course. And the greenkeeper said, I can't hire an American kid. You know, people are out of work here. I've got to hire the locals. But, you know, I talked to the caddy master you can caddy every day and see the golf course that way, and you can hang around me all you want. Perfect. I did that for two months. And, 
And a lot of what I learned, you know, I learned the old course really well because I had to learn it not for my game, but for everybody's. I mean, you know, back then they would like people, I caddied for one or two guys from Asia. I don't think they'd ever played 18 holes on grass before. They could hit the ball. You know, they, they'd like hit balls at a driving range a bunch. And that was a big thing in Japan 30 years ago. But you didn't have access to golf there. So, you know, they'd take a vacation to Scotland and try to play golf and, you know, not know what to do, chipping and putting and going to the next tee and all of those little details. But, you know, a lot of what I learned was about how important it is for players to be confident in what they're doing. Like when you watch on TV at, the, at a tournament and the caddies are mic'd now, you know, or they're just picking up the caddy, the conversation with the caddy from a boom mic, you know, it's almost funny to the point of embarrassing how the caddy, you know, no matter what, even if he's trying to talk the player out of something, you know, the last message is always, that's the perfect club. That's the perfect yardage. Hit that. Because saying anything else is a recipe for disaster. If you put a doubt in somebody's mind, there's one hole at St. Andrews that there's bunkers in the middle of the fairway and you cannot see them. It's a simple hole. It's a really short 320-yard par four. In fact, it's the hole that we used some pieces of for the eighth at Common Ground. Is that number nine or 10? 12. Oh, 12. And, you know, the bunkers are in the fairway facing the other way because they used to play the golf course backwards some of the times, and they were more for that. But anyway, you stand on the tee, and it's like there's gorse left, and there's, there's out-of-bounds right, and then there's these bunkers that are just out there like landmines that nobody can see. And the first three or four times I caddied, I tried to explain that to the players, and they just top it off the tee or hit a terrible shot or whatever. You know, and I was thinking, well, I don't want them to wind up in the bunker and blame me. But after... It didn't take me very long to figure out you cannot do that to people. You just have to tell them, aim at that church spire way the hell down there and, and silently we'll cross our fingers and hope you don't pop it up and wind up in this pot bunker. <laughs> Eric, do you, have a, do you have an answer to that question as well? I think any place that you play, if you just care to think about why things worked out the way they did and were there choices that you had from the tee or was it just kind of your only option which is harder these days because the, the number one option is to just wail on the driver so that's kind of changed a little bit in terms of not so much club selection but as much as directionally do you want to be close to something or do you want to steer clear of something and identifying whether or not after you've played course a five times and course b five times why do you like one over the other Typically, it's because, or the reason is because one of them is less boring and more interesting than the other. It doesn't really apply to everybody, you know. But I think any avid golfer will get something out of it, even if it's no more than to help their own game, which is, frankly, that's the main reason most people give a crap in the first place. That's the kernel that that's the seed that it grows from once once you're you you kind of dabble in understanding why things are where they are that kind of sparks the interest and the interest grows and then you kind of apply that to some place whether it's new or that you played before but hadn't been thinking along thinking in the same terms and you go back and it's just like well i think i can carry that bunker what are the ramifications and then that's thinking about architecture. It's really that simple. And 
I think it's easy to get caught up into, you know, some of the, you know, it's easy to kind of get in the weeds on it and get caught up in some big discussion when really it's as simple as do this, don't do that, try to make four, try to make five from where you are, whatever. That's the start of it. And then it's really yeah. just for people to take it as far as they like. And one more thing on that topic. I mean, to me, the most important thing is a really good golf hole, you should think about it backwards. You know, like there's the green, there's the hole. Okay, where do I want to miss? You know, if I, can't, if I don't hit my approach shot in the hole, do I want to be left of the pin or right of the pin or short of the pin or where? Because we've built, some, I've built some fairly severe greens on a few courses in my life. So no. The, yes. So, so the the number one thing I'm at, you know, the number one piece of negative feedback I get is, I hit it, you know, I hit this par five in two, and I had an impossible putt <laughs> over this contour down to the hole. I couldn't get it closer than eight feet. So you do get my I emails. Still, okay, thank you. Yes. <laughs> Not many people email me with those things, but if I see them in person, it comes out. It just comes spilling out. But, you know, I always look at them and like, okay, well, you know, that contour that you had to putt over, that is really severe and it's really hard to, to putt if you have to putt over that on purpose. That's the whole point of the hole. <laughs> it's like, and every contour like that, if you're on the right side of it, it's a backstop. It is not a problem. But people don't think like that. You know, people think if I can reach the green on a par five and two, that's good. And they don't think if I was just short of the green and chipping at the hole from there, I'd make four every single time. Why would I take a forward and try to get there if I don't have control over it? And it might wind up in this place where I can't putt anywhere near the hole. I think I read this on the Common Ground website. I think you wrote it, but it, it made me, it, it was, I, I found it very enlightening. And, you know, a, a good thrill for a golfer is when the line between birdie and bogey is very close. Does that sound like something you, you've said? It might be. <laughs> Could you explain that? Well, you know, some, like, pro golfers think that the penalty should be proportionate to the miss. And if you're really, really good, that makes all the sense in the world. But if we did that, then most of the people sitting in this tent right now would give up because we all miss shots all the time, much worse than Brooks Kepka and Rory McIlroy miss shots. So you can't do that. I mean, if you, if you, did, if you made every yard offline worse, most people would just give up the game in a hurry. You, you kind of have to do it the other way around. You have to make it where you can miss by a lot, and it doesn't necessarily cost you too much, but it's really hard to get close and make birdie. But it's not really hard to move the ball forward and make par or bogey and get onto the next hole. I'm curious how, you know, you mentioned kind of technology and how the long par four doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, with, like this golf course is going to host the, uh, the stroke play rounds, the U.S. Mid-Am, the U.S. Am has been here. There's some back, back tee boxes here. How, I can't imagine what, that, what that's like. We, we play, you play at altitude here, so it, there's just not enough real estate really to put tees where they need to be. How do you possibly, and have you guys started to get or try to get more creative on how you combat technology for the longest hitters? Because again, you're making this golf course for that everyday 15 handicap, that's who it's for, but it's also the, the top level of golf played there. But it's not as simple, I would imagine, as just moving tee boxes back. How do you combat it? What do you do? One of the things that's really been striking was 
just the results at Medina this last weekend. I mean, we did a little work on one of the other golf courses there. That was the only time I'd been there. I mean, they were still taking down the stands for the Ryder Cup when it was there. It's a hard golf course. And to see, you know, just what happened this last weekend, and to some extent, you know, our golf course, Tom's golf course in Scotland earlier in the summer, it really kind of drove home the point of just how important the elements are, you know, and how important just having some breeze and some heat and being able to bake it out a little bit. I really wish that the people, you know, club owners that really are the most upset about, you know, when the scores go low, <laughs> you know, the, guy, the guys selling advertisement don't care. They just assumed everybody shoot 25 under every week. Uh, you know, the club owners get more upset about it than anybody. I think if more people just appreciated, you know, the vagaries of weather week in and week out, you know, and the, and the tour avoids that by manipulating the schedule so they try not to get in that situation. But if it's wet and guys are getting their hands on it, there's not a lot you can do. But if it's, if you get a little wind and you can dry the place out and get it firm, then we like to think places like this will fare pretty well because there are those places in the greens that have some contour and you can get on the right side of them and or be on the wrong side of them fairly easy. If it's soft, it's a lot harder to, for those, you know, to get those players out of position. And we're, we're at kind of a crossroads design-wise with that, and it's a hot topic right now. So after college, after that little trip overseas, I worked for Pete Dye for four years. And when I worked for Mr. Dye, pretty much every course he was building, with one exception, well, two, because one of them was Riverdale Dunes up here, 20 miles northeast of Denver. You know, most of his projects were going to host tour events. And he really thought a lot about what can I do to challenge these guys. And for him, it was like, get in their heads. As much as you can, get in their heads. Because that's the one thing that you can actually affect them more than the average guy. The average guy's already got that problem to some degree. <laughs> You're not going to do any more to, to get to to take down his confidence. But for a good player, if you can get them uncomfortable, that makes it a lot harder for them. So simple things like, you know, like the green is kind of hanging in space and you can't see the back edge of it clearly and what's behind it. It's like when we were working on Sabonic in New York with Jack Nicholas, he said that we were building the 11th green and he's like, don't you want to put some mounds behind that green? I'm like, no. He's like, but you can't see what's down there. I was like, I was going for that, but I didn't think it would bother you. <laughs> <laughs> then I started designing courses on my own. And my first course was a public golf course in Traverse City, where I live now. And, you know, the client said something about, well, you know, he, I mean, it was, it was a beautiful piece of land. He, he'd owned it for years. He always thought it'd be a great piece of land to build a golf course on. So he's finally doing it. And in the back of his mind, he's like, well, wouldn't it be cool to have a tournament here someday? And I just laughed at that right off. I was like, yeah, you could have a tournament if you're going to put up $5 million for those guys to show up. Mr. Dye used to say when somebody would compliment him on host, building a course that hosted a tour event, he would say, those boys would play in a parking lot for $5 million. <laughs> <laughs> it would take more than $5 million now. Um, but so for the longest time in my career, I'm like, okay, 
those aren't the projects that people hire me to do. I don't have to worry about that so much. I can just worry about me and you and Eric and everybody in this room and making it interesting for them. And yes, I know some really good players and I want them to come out and see at least three or four shots where they're like, uh-oh, I have to work on this one a little bit. But I don't care if they shoot 66 when they do it. Only in the last couple of years, you know, we, our course in Scotland, the Renaissance Club, which is next door to Muirfield, just hosted the Scottish Open this summer. Actually, the men's and the women's Scottish Opens. And we're working on a, we've been working on a project in Houston this year, a public course in the city called Memorial Park, Shades of Common Ground in some ways. It's been a muni since the 30s. Rundown's not a fair word, but it, it was a fairly flat golf course and not much pizzazz to it. And the Jim Crane, the owner of the Houston Astros, uh, stepped in when Shell dropped out as the sponsor there and said, well, we'll round up the sponsors to do this, but on one condition, we want to put money into the, into the golf course here and move the tournament back downtown because we're all interested in doing a bunch of corporate hospitality that weekend. We don't want to be way up in the suburbs. We want to, be, we want to come right to the golf course downtown. So in addition to pledging the money to support the tournament for five years, he also raised $25 million to renovate the golf course, the clubhouse, move the tennis courts away from it. I mean, it's an amazing project for somebody to jump into like that. And, you know, when we're all done, he just turns the keys back over to the city and says, okay, it's yours again. So is there anything more challenging than designing and working on a golf course that is a municipal course that everyone's going to play, but also PGA Tour players are going to play yes. a competitive event on yes. it? And How do you do it? What do- well, we, we've sort of just gave up pretty early on the idea that, that we're going to keep those guys to anywhere close to par figures. I mean, a, we didn't have that much land. B, they're really good. You know, C, Houston... You know, you could get a couple of dry weeks before the tournament, but it's a pretty wet place most of the year round. Just getting the golf course built has been a struggle. So, you know, the odds that we're going to get dry weather and really be able to dry out the golf course and make it tough are probably pretty low. And, and yes, this, this is a, it's a public course that does 60,000 rounds a year. So you can't do the one thing that all the pros would be okay with that would make it harder for them is build small greens. You know, really, the, the two things you can do to make it hard for them is build small greens and build greens with tilt and contour in them. The tour tries to handcuff you on doing too much tilt and contour, and the fact that you're going to play 60,000 rounds a year there means you cannot make the greens really small. Our smallest green will be 5,000 square feet, and the biggest, there's a couple that are fairly big, but uh, even a 5,000 square foot green, which is average or for most golf courses, was kind of like the minimum size that the greenkeeper was comfortable with, even if it was pretty flat and there was room around it and you didn't funnel all the traffic off the same place. What we're doing is going to be really different. We don't have a lot of bunkers. We have like 19 bunkers for an 18-hole golf course. We have water way more in play on four or five holes than we normally do. We have a little contour in the greens here and there, some places you don't want to miss. You know, we've tried to, you know, basically all the holes except for one of the par threes, all the holes are pretty much in the same quarters that they were before. But we've tried to like 
you know, shift the tea left or right and bring the big trees that are there more into play. You know, that's the other thing that gets pros' attention is trees. Even they can't go through a tree. You know, they can hit it over a tree if it's far enough ahead of them, but if you get it, if the trees say 50 yards past where they're going to drive it, then it's a problem for them because getting up over it is no sure thing. My, and this happens so infrequently, I'm struggling to even think of like a regular PGA Tour stop where this happens, but I find the most interesting professional golf to watch is when there's short grass around the greens. I'm curious as to, and, and watching the USAM at Pinehurst this past week was, greens were maybe a bit too dialed up, but it was about the best example of watching competitive golf. I think that's about as good as it gets. The best way to combat how far this golf ball is going is like, okay, use that against people, try to get to, trying to get them to make it stop when it doesn't really spin anymore. Yes and no. Uh, yes, that works great at Pinehurst. That works great if you can keep the greens small enough. We're gonna have, we have a bunch of short grass around the greens. We did at the Renaissance Club too, but if you give the pros a big enough target, they're going to start in the middle of the green and work out from there. So they're, they're not going to miss off the edge that often. You know, they always hedge toward the center. Actually, what we tried to do, and hopefully not too many of them are listening to your podcast right now, so it'll take them more than a day to figure it out. One of the, thing, one of the concepts I came up with in the beginning was, let's try to do something kind of in the middle of this green to make them not want to aim there. Like, you know, that's the place where it divides from a high side to a low side or there's a little crown right there, or just something. So, you know, if I play it toward the middle, it might catch this little feature and turn and go further, even further away than I expect. So now you're making me aim at half the green instead of the whole thing. How much of a role does Brooks Kepka? I know you guys are working together on this Houston course. What does he consult on? Have you been pleasantly surprised, frustrated at all with his understanding of golf? Like what, what, I can't picture how that relationship works. I mean, I'm just curious. Well, obviously, he's uh, busy playing golf, and he doesn't have a ton of time to work on it. Um, it Jim Crane, uh, the client, in addition to all his activities in Houston, he owns a club in Florida called the Floridian, which a bunch of the tour players play out of. Ricky Fowler plays there. Dustin Johnson plays there. Kepka plays there. Six or eight pros or members there and play play when they're home and then you know a bunch of guys get out there from time to time so they knew all these guys pretty well and said well I said to him in the beginning well why don't we just sit a bunch of those guys down at once and say what would be the middle ground between it's just too easy and it's just a putt you know it's just who putts best that week is going to win and it's too tricked up and we don't like it because of that what's the course that you guys would all like to play but, you know, the tour wants one player to kind of be the consultant and, you know, and not be open season. And I'll admit that having five different guys giving input would have been pretty hard. I like to have one client that I'm dealing with instead of 200 members is a lot harder to answer to because they don't agree. You know, of those guys, and this is just before he's won four of the last eight majors or ten majors, they said, well, we like Brooks a lot, you know. Let's, let's talk to him. So, uh, you know, I met him in Florida last winter, and I said, well, what do you like? And he said, I said, what's your favorite course? And he said, far away the old course of St. Andrews. I'm like, okay, good, good start. <laughs> we're, we, we can agree on a lot there. And, you know, that's funny, because that's when we were doing Sabonic, Jack Nicholas and I, that's, a, that's the first course we could talk about. If we were, like, at loggerheads trying to figure out what to do, what could we do from there? You know, what kind of, 
It's just a different vocabulary of stuff that you can work on. But Brooks really thinks that he's so good at the majors because they're about the only tournaments on the tour that it really matters which side of the hole you're on. You know, the greens have more slope and they've got them just a little extra fast. The regular every week tour event, they don't do that. They put the pins in gentler locations. They don't get the greens quite that fast because they don't want to embarrass the players week in and week out. And they want the setup to be pretty similar from one week to the next. So when you go to Milwaukee, whether you played the week before or you didn't, it doesn't take you two days to figure out what I, what, how do I have to play this golf course. You know, I think that kind of makes it more boring at the same time, but that's what the players want, that's what they get. Um, you know, and Brooks thinks as a result of that, there's a lot of players that just don't pay much attention to where you'd want to miss around the green, because most of the year, most weeks they don't have to worry that much. And at the majors, it makes a lot of difference. And it makes a difference from one day to the next. You can't just say, I'm going to always drive it left on 12, because there's going to be at least one whole location that that is not the best place to be. You know, he thinks about architecture a lot. And from that basis, we've gotten on really well. And some of the suggestions he's made to me are really subtle things. Being in a fairway bunker is not that hard because I'm still going to have a nine or a wedge to the green. So I'm not thinking, I'm not worried about whether I hit into that or not. So why have one? It costs more money to build. It, every time it rains, the sand wants to wash down the face and they have to fix it up, which is a tournament is a real problem. The tour was thrilled to hear we're not going to have so many bunkers for you to clean up when it rains here. But then in place of that, we're trying to just do little things like just, just out there on the edge of the rough, just have like little mounds where if I miss it out there, I'm on a side hill lie in the rough. That's hard to control. That ball sometimes and not every time is just gonna come out hot and turn over. And so now I have to think about, okay, is there some backstop out there that I can aim for to stop it from getting away from me? At the same time, I'm not just trying to hit it at the hole all day. So I've learned quite a bit about that little stuff just from the few days he's gotten to spend out there. And, and, and obviously, we couldn't have done it at a better time. I mean, you turn on the TV in a major championship, but the guy is right there every time. It's, <laughs> it's hard not to root for him once you know him. Yeah, lots of, lots to of unpack there. One, it's nuts to hear for somebody that you, you says pays a lot of attention to architecture, somebody who also says, when I'm on the PGA Tour, I just pound driver, go find it and hit it because they don't test them very much. Um, strategically, but also on that note, you said the old course is his favorite golf course. What's the only thing you think of when you're hitting tee shots out there is, I gotta avoid that bunker, I gotta avoid that Absolutely. one, I gotta avoid that one. So, And unfortunately, you can't build bunkers like that in Houston on a really flat clay site. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I promise, uh, I swear this was in like my, uh, my top five of to get to your background more, Eric, and we haven't even gotten that because you guys have been so much on fire, but we've been talking about the old course a lot. I'm curious what, what your guys, what your, let's, go, let's say non-road hole division, what your favorite hole out there is and why. It could be most inspiring hole, it could be just most fun to play, but what are some of your favorite holes out there? For me, it changes pretty much every time I've played it, so. I've always liked 16. I don't have near the experience that, that Tom has there. I've probably been around it four or five times now, um, just recently with my wife, who birdied the road hole, incidentally. Uh, <laughs> and she's here tonight. But 16, <laughs> 16 is just such a cool hole because you really want to try to slip it between the boundary 
And uh, are those the spectacles there? The principal's, principal's nose. nose. Or the principal's nose, yeah. You just want to slip it right down the boundary if you can. And it really just matters what way the wind is blowing that day, how you've been, dry, you know, how you've been hitting it. Just, there's just a lot of, it's not one of the more noteworthy holes, but I just always have liked the ramifications of taking on that challenge and having my opponent kind of bail out and go left. And did I pull it off or didn't I? And I, I've always liked that. That, like that hole, that hole in particular for me, it kind of opened my eyes because the wind, when I played it one day, the wind was off the left. And my caddy looks at his book and he looks at where the pin is and he goes, all right, we're going where the pros go. Because the when the wind's coming off the left, that OB comes right in play. And yep. we went down the second fairway. And I always thought, I was like, I know the fairways are connected, but I never thought of like the strategic advantage, depending where the pin is, of like, we want to be there rather than try to fit it in there today. And I was just like, oh my God, that's what this place is all about. So that's, that's, yeah. that, that, that hole holds a special place in my heart. Another hole like that at St. Andrews is 14, the, mm -hmm. the long hole, which you've got out of bounds right. Hell bunker in the middle of, the, you know, interrupts the fairway on the second shot. You can try to get over it, but if you don't, you're in hell. <laughs> and, and if you do, you've got a really awkward little shot left with a big false front on the green and the green going away from you, so it's no bargain. It's very hard. The locals all just play over into number five on their second shot and go around the bunker and take it out of play and then hit back kind of where they can hit into the slip of the green more. You would never, ever think of that if you didn't have a caddy or you didn't know the golf course really well. I mean, even it's when so you're caddying left. for people, telling them to do it, they're like, you can't what? over there? And there's like, yeah. you know, there's people playing over there, but one of the rules of the old course is, Homeward players have the right of way. So when you're on number five, you're supposed to be watching. If somebody wants to come on 14, you better get out of their way because they're going to do it. To me, the famous holes at St. Andrews are 11, the, the par three with the deep bunker front right uh, that's right out, backs up to the river. 14, the long par five. 16 that he talked about, the road hole. And then I don't think most people think it's a great hole, but it, you know, it's an incomparable setting to play the 18th hole anyway. Yeah. And it, you know, there's a little trick to it. It's not as easy yeah. as it looks when it's just a big field, but there's that one contour just in front of the green. A lot of people play in there for the first time. It's a very disorienting golf course. It doesn't look like most other golf courses. You can't pick out the bunkers very well. And those, those early holes, after you hit across the burn on the first hole, they kind of blend in. Players don't remember two from three from four very well at all. Two and four are two of my favorite holes there. Two's just got some wrinkly contours in front of the green on the left that if you're hitting a forward into the green, it just rolls up over those things like they're not there. If you're hitting an eight iron on the green, you better not land on the backside of one of those contours or you're going through the green into a bunker in deep trouble. And then number four, it's just got this little about four foot high pimply mound kind of right in front of it. And as firm as the ground is there most of the time, you can't, if you fly it over that, you're probably going to wind up at the back of the green. So now it's in your way. Do I drive it really tight to the right side to try to come into the right of it? Do I drive way out to the left so I can try to get around it to the left side? But if you just hit a ball straight down the middle without thinking about it, it's right in your way. Having just played there for the first time in about, must have been seven or eight years, and Tom touched, touched on it earlier, what makes the old course so special is that 
it exemplifies in all of golf, playing the old course is about having faith and trust in what you're going because you can't see where you want to go all day long. I think the better the player you are, the bigger the test it is of your faith and your trust in hitting it where you're going, where you think you're going to hit it. And it applies to, I always think of places that have a lot of trees. Those are kind of guideposts. You know, there's just, every hole there's an instinctive line that's just trouble left, trouble right, split the difference. That's the instinctive line for most people. And you strip all that away. And the possibilities of how wide you can miss are magnified. It's just hard to have the discipline all day long to hit it where you want to hit it. And at the old course, you only have to hit it 220 yards. I mean, you can pretty well tack your way around there without any wooden clubs if you chose to and do great. If you can just hit it where the caddy tells you to hit it. Hmm. And even after four or five goes, I still wouldn't say I know it at all. You need, you need guidance. Yeah. Well, I got about two pages of notes that we're probably not going to get to, but it's an hour and a half until last call. So I'm going to wrap it at this. And I, I, for, again, I'm, I know we talked a lot about common ground, but I want to emphasize, and we haven't even talked about all the practice facilities that are around here and just how unbelievable of a public space this is. So twofold question. I want to know what, com- what are the best comparables to common ground you've seen anywhere in your travels in, around big cities maybe? I don't know if that exists, but, uh, and, and additionally, just what, what can local public places or any, any places do to replicate like the special thing they have going here at Common Ground? Well, I mean, a lot of the difference at Common Ground is it's not a muni course, it's run by the CGA. Yeah. The mission is totally different. I mean, you know, municipal golf courses are great from the standpoint that they provide low-cost golf to people that would never play if there wasn't low-cost golf. They're probably also one of the, I'm a pretty liberal person for the golf business, they're probably one of the best arguments against government-run facilities because most of them are pretty horribly run and the golf courses aren't in very good shape. They have a hard time running a business because they don't, there's a bunch of different factions that are wrestling over who gets priority and you know what the mission is. And the CGA, they have a pretty clear mission of what they want to do and it's not about trying to make as much money as they can, and it's not about trying to keep the price this for the seniors and to heck with everybody else, to have more facilities that were either run, you know, even if a town would just put its golf courses in trust. I mean, you think about St. Andrews, the golf course is owned by the Lynx Trust, which is now a massive corporation because St. Andrews brings so much money in, but the town itself doesn't run it day-to-day like a muni, they gave it to another body which has its own principles. They're in charge of making sure it doesn't stray from that, and that's a tremendously better model for doing things. I don't think there aren't enough of them to point to that are kind of doing a similar thing to what Common Ground is doing. I mean, specifically, as a golf course, I really enjoyed uh, getting to know and playing Rustic Canyon the last couple of years. One of the connections I think you could draw is... The CGA had very clear priorities when we set out. You know, when you set out for build a golf course for a set amount of money, you just kind of have to rank the things that are important to you. And they really 
were in line with what we thought the priorities ought to be. I mean, there's only within the last couple of years that there's uh, proper hard surface cart paths out here, which, you know, is entirely due to how much rain they get and it's kind of flat. Yeah. But in the beginning, we're like, you know, if we can go without paving a bunch of cart paths out there, we could just put that money back into the golf course and just make the holes better and the golf better. And, and they were all about that. You know, the best compliment I ever heard about this course was that every town should have one because Amen. it doesn't take, you know, it's not the world beater piece of land, although it's quite good. It's big and it's open, beautiful vistas, didn't cost a ton of money. It's like there's no reason that every decent sized city should have something just like this. We got people from the Jacksonville uh, Beach Golf Association here this week to see that <laughs> as well. So uh, if we can have a big round of applause for our guests this evening. Eric Iverson and Tom Doak. That was, we could do this for several hours, but this was absolutely tremendous. So thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you for all you've done uh, for golf in this, in this area and all around the world. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!